listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War. The Philippines, the USA, war, colonialism, and the martial arts. Part 17. As I'm sure you've figured out by now, in the storied history of the United States of America, the Philippine-American War was not among its noblest hours. If there is a single area of human endeavor that brings out the worst in us, it is war. Even in a war that is truly fought for a just cause, there are plenty of war crimes committed by both sides in pretty much every conflict. After the devastating defeats the Americans inflicted on the Filipinos in the few conventional engagements that were fought early in the war, the First Philippine Republic did what many losing sides have done throughout the history of warfare. They reverted to what we nowadays call asymmetrical, or guerrilla, warfare. If, as I stated earlier, war brings out the worst in us, then guerrilla warfare tends to take that worst and turn it up to 11. The soldiers of the more powerful side are often stuck in a strange country among people who hate them, seeing their buddies killed in hit-and-run ambushes. They might be ordered by their superiors to commit acts that border on atrocity, and at times cross even that line. To round up civilians and put them behind barbed wire, where many of them die from disease, or to destroy their homes and crops, making them refugees. Such activities are dehumanizing to both the victim and the perpetrator, and cannot help but have a terrible effect on morale. Soldiers with a more evolved conscience might descend into self-loathing, substance abuse, even suicidal thoughts. Those with a less evolved outlook frequently develop an intense ethnic hatred for the enemy. And those on the weaker side of asymmetrical warfare will be forced to behave like animals, hiding in swamps, caves, and rainforests, living off the land, and desperately attacking only when rare moments of weakness are perceived in the stronger enemy. Once the Philippine insurrectos checked down from conventional to guerrilla warfare, the incidence of atrocities skyrocketed on both sides. An ugly war got a whole lot uglier. As what was left of the war sputtered into the year 1902, and despite the tight lid that the American government tried to keep on information, a growing number of civilians were becoming aware of the inhuman and inhumane qualities of this war. Combat veterans, haunted by guilt and PTSD, wrote letters telling horrifying stories to their families. Reporters with anti-imperialist leanings dug hard for details, both in the Philippines and at home, for more information. Now, there had always been American voices expressing anti-war sentiment, but now those voices were increasing in both volume and number. Perhaps the most eloquent among them was Mark Twain. He had originally supported the war, surprisingly, admitting that he wanted to see the, quote, American Eagle go screaming into the Pacific, unquote. You see, he naively thought that by winning the Spanish-American War, we would save the people of the Philippines from Spanish oppression. He said, quote, we can make them as free as ourselves, unquote. 
But he soon learned differently. After the end of the Spanish-American War, he wrote, quote, I have read carefully the Treaty of Paris, and I have seen that we do not intend to free, but to subjugate the people of the Philippines. We have gone there to conquer, not to redeem, and so I am an anti-imperialist. I am opposed to having the eagle put its talons on any other land. Later, after hearing about some of the atrocities committed, he would write, quote, We can have our usual flag, with the white stripes painted black and the stars replaced by the skull and crossbones. Many Americans found the idea of an American empire to be horrifying. Wasn't it the American spirit that originally freed us from a powerful empire? But there was also a darker side to the anti-war voices in this story. You see, there was a decidedly racist segment of Americans who were revolted by the thought of millions of little brown people being given the right to emigrate to the continental U.S. merely for the cost of passage on a trans-Pacific ship. No immigration officials would be involved. They would be legal American residents. One United States senator described his fear of an influx of, quote, tens of millions of Malays and other unspeakable Asiatics, unquote. Each of these two groups of voices was opposed by those promoting the shouldering of the, quote, white man's burden, unquote. Another U.S. senator, this one from my home state of Indiana, said, quote, We must never forget that in dealing with the Filipinos, we deal with children, unquote. The voices of politicians were not the only ones heard. As has always been the case in American wars, soldiers rode home to their families. Some of them were our old friends, the African-American Buffalo Soldiers. One of them, Private William Fulbright, wrote that the war was a, quote, gigantic scheme of robbery and oppression, unquote. Another, Robert Earl Campbell, told a reporter that, quote, these people are right and we are wrong, terribly wrong. No man who has any humanity about him at all would desire to fight against such a cause as this, unquote. And it was not only the Buffalo Soldiers. American General Felix A. Reeve was forced by his conscience to commit his thoughts to paper. Quote, I deprecate this war, the slaughter of our own boys and the Filipinos, because it seems to me that we are doing something that is contrary to our principles. Unquote. A perhaps more clueless American general said, quote, it may be necessary to kill half of the Filipinos in order that the remaining half of the population may be advanced to a higher plane of life than their present semi-barbarous state affords, unquote. An American congressman who wished to remain anonymous had visited the Philippines and said to a reporter, quote, you never hear of any disturbances in northern Luzon because there isn't anybody there left to rebel. The good Lord in heaven only knows the number of Filipinos that were put underground. Our soldiers took no prisoners. They kept no records. They simply swept the country, and wherever and whenever they could get a hold of the Filipino, they killed him." Unquote. One reporter who covered the Samar campaign wrote, quote, The only prisoners that were made were taken by Waller's command, and I heard this act criticized by the highest officers as a mistake. The truth is, the struggle in Samar was one of extermination. Unquote. When questioned about the inhumanity of the American war effort, Secretary of War Elihu Root was quoted as saying, 
the warfare has been conducted with marked humanity and magnanimity on the part of the USA. Now, this is truly an amazing claim when you consider that Root was in charge of the American military, the very military that convened 44 separate courts martial for war crimes before the war was over. Considering that this was in the very early days of the 20th century, a surprising number of convictions for murder, rape, and property destruction resulted. Unfortunately, after our friend Teddy Roosevelt took office as president in 1900, halfway through the war, he reduced or commuted a large fraction of these sentences. On a much grander stage, the United States Senate became involved. Way back in December 1899, this august body set up the Senate Committee on the Philippines to oversee American affairs there. Remember our friend General Joseph Hurd Smith, who commanded the Samar campaign and ordered that any inhabitant of the island old enough to wield a weapon should be killed? Well, on November 4th of 1901, he had, foolishly, mentioned to a newspaper reporter that he intended to set the entire island of Samar ablaze and would probably wipe out most of the population. Of course, this reporter didn't keep this to himself, and the resulting uproar in the press triggered more intense scrutiny by the Senate committee. Now, here's where we get to a little bit of interesting history. If you're like me and old enough to remember the terrorist attacks of 9-11, then you probably also remember the bitter controversy that arose over the use of a form of torture called waterboarding by American intelligence operatives. But waterboarding was not new to post-9-11 American officials. It had been used quite extensively by the Americans on Filipinos during the Philippine-American War. They had a different name for it in those days. They called it the water cure, and they had learned it from the Spaniards in the Philippines after the war. The first witness to testify in the Senate hearings was the American governor of the Philippines, future president and chief justice of the Supreme Court, William Howard Taft. He admitted upon being questioned that, quote, the torturing of natives by the so-called water cure and other methods had been used on some occasions to extract information, unquote. Another witness was General Robert P. Hughes, who had been chief of staff to the first American military governor of the Philippines, General Elwell Otis. He admitted to the committee that Filipino houses were burned indiscriminately as a strategy to eliminate shelter and hiding places for Filipino guerrillas. He was asked by one senator to estimate the value of these houses, and he scoffed dismissively that they only took a few days to build and cost between $1.50 and $4. One anti-imperialist senator, Joseph Rollins, jumped on that point. Rollins asked, if these shacks were of no consequence, what was the utility of their destruction? Hughes replied haughtily that the destruction was a punishment. They permitted these people to come in there and conceal themselves, and they gave no sign. It is always, Rollins interrupted, the punishment in that case would fall not upon the men who can go elsewhere, but mainly upon the women and little children. To this, General Hughes answered, the women and children are part of the family and where you wish to inflict a punishment, you can punish a man probably worse in that way than any other. Astonished at this blatantly inhumane declaration, Senator Rollins queried, Is that within the ordinary rules of civilized warfare? Of course, you could exterminate the family, which would still be worse punishment. 
General Hughes, growing irritated at being questioned in this way by a mere civilian, replied hotly, These people are not civilized. Senator Rawlins calmly persisted. But is that within the ordinary rules of civilized warfare? To this, Hughes admitted, No, I think it is not. Hughes then went further down this dark path by throwing shade on valiant African-American buffalo soldiers and their service under him in the Philippines, insinuating that they had given aid and comfort to the enemy. My apologies now for quoting Hughes's racial slurs. The darky troops we sent to Samar mixed with the natives at once. Whenever they came together, they became great friends. When I withdrew the darky company from Santa Rita, I was told the natives even shed tears for their going away. Such words literally speak for themselves. Once his chief of staff had been thoroughly questioned, General Otis himself was called to the stand. In his testimony, he made the outrageous claim that there had been no warfare in the Philippines for the past two years. Senator Hale, incredulous, asked him to clarify. General Otis responded haughtily by saying that any such fighting was due to, quote, robbers, unquote, and that he and his men were, quote, laughed at by the Spaniards and European officers for the humanity that we exercised, unquote. Well, this action against robbers resulted in a lot more American soldiers being killed than had the Spanish-American War. General Otis was lying through his teeth, under oath, to the United States Senate. Here are a few more examples. In the Visayas campaign, the U.S. Navy felt free to shell the coastal villages with its gunboats prior to invasion. In January and February of 1901, the entire population of Marinduque Island, about 50,000 people, was ordered into five concentration camps set up by the Americans. All those who did not comply with the order would be considered as acting in sympathy with the insurrectos and treated accordingly. This was to be the first of many instances of the application of the, quote, reconcentrado, unquote, policy in the Philippines. At the same time as the Samar campaign, the Batangas region of Luzon was also still in open conflict against the Americans. Command of this region was given to Major General J. Franklin Bell. Bell declared, quote, All consideration in regard for the inhabitants of this place cease from the day I become commander. I have the force and authority to do whatever seems to me good, and especially to humiliate those in the province who have any pride. Unquote. In December, General Bell set up a series of concentration camps. The people of the area had two weeks in which to move into the garrisons. Everything lying outside the perimeter of the camps was subject to confiscation or destruction, and any Filipinos found there would be automatically considered insurrectos. Filipinos were rounded up and herded into detention camps, where overcrowded conditions and lack of proper food and clothing resulted in the predictable spread of infectious diseases, like malaria, dengue fever, and cholera, each of which took their toll. One correspondent described the prisoners as, quote, a miserable-looking lot of little brown rats, utterly spiritless, unquote. 
Statistics compiled by the U.S. government stated that at least 100,000 people were killed or died in Batangas alone as a direct result of these policies. But they worked. The commander of the Philippine Insurrectos in Batangas, General Malvar, surrendered to the Americans in April 1902. Theodore Roosevelt proudly declared on July 4, 1902, that the Philippine-American War was over. Next time, I'll tell you why that wasn't exactly true. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain Podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about The Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>